Hello folks, welcome back and if you're a new listener, thank you for joining us. You're listening to the High Performance Human Podcast and I'm your host, Simon Ward. Before we get into today's show, I'd like to talk about what it means to be a high performance human. It's got nothing to do with how fast you swim, bike or run, but it's got everything to do with your sleep, your nutrition, physical activity, personal relationships, work habits and so much more. If these are areas you'd like to improve on, then we would love to help you. I currently have availability to take on a couple of clients and my wife Beth, who's also a certified life coach, has some availability as well. So depending on what you're looking to focus on, we've got you covered. You can find contact details in the show notes below. And now for today's show. 20 years ago, Jack Maitland and I were asked by British Triathlon to run one of the regional talent ID programs in the north of England. The brief was to find talented young boys and girls who were good swimmers and runners and who might turn out to be exceptional triathletes. I don't think we did too badly, do you? We found two brothers uh, who did quite well in the triathlon world. (laughs) I don't need to tell you who they are, I think you probably know. Anyway, also in that squad was a young lady called Jess Towell. Jess was in the squad for three or four years and then she left to go to train in Australia with the West Australian tri-team. On returning, she joined the performance squad in Loughborough. Things didn't quite work out as planned, so she left there to teach swimming in Dubai and she turned herself into a very successful CrossFit Games competitor. As a triathlete, Jess did not have the physique or the strength for CrossFit and as she explains, it was a long, arduous but very rewarding journey. She now works in Dubai as a coach to both CrossFit athletes and triathletes. And so in the conversation, we talk about the differences in training for the two sports, how she learned to perform Olympic lifts, having a performance mindset, and why she owns a CrossFit world record. Finally, we talk about how she's rebuilding herself after a catastrophic shoulder injury during competition. I hope you enjoy the show, and who knows, you might find the inspiration to change sports or just to start lifting weights for your own triathlon performance. Well, it's a great pleasure to welcome onto the show Jess Towell. Hi. <laughs> yeah, how are you doing? It's it's an awful long time since we uh, last met and last spoke, isn't it? We, I think probably not twenty years, but getting on for that. Yeah, I'd say it was yeah between fifteen and twenty years. That makes us sound really old, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. <laughs> me, me, me more than you, but we've we've both aged. Um, you look to be aging better than I am. Um, but we should give the listeners a bit of context as to how we know each other from this sort of like um, 20 years ago. So uh, Jack Maitland and I used to run a talent ID program on behalf of British Triathlon. And our area was the north of England. And our brief was to try and find talented young swimmers and runners, male and female, who um, we might be able to mould and nurture and develop into the professional British triathletes for the future. And you were one of those people, Jess. Yes. Uh, I must I think I was maybe 13 or 14. And I remember coming to a trial weekend with both you and Jack. And I came with my mountain bike and, you know, just a swimmer and a runner background. And I even remember that Alistair Brownlee and Johnny Brownlee were there on that day too. They were they were coming for their little first trial. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they didn't do too badly, did they? No, and I remember that uh, at the time, Johnny was actually too young. So he had to watch Alistair do all the trials. Yeah. And uh, a big memory of that weekend was Jack making us pick up bottles as we were cycling. Yeah. Um, never never ridden a bike other than a BMX bike in the back garden before that. So I think yeah. 
Um, that might have been one of Chip Rafferty's little uh, cycle things. Do you remember Chips? Yes. Um, and his sons, Joe and Alex. And and Chips used to, um, whenever we went up to Ingleton, did you ever come on one of those when we went to the Yorkshire Dales? Yorkshire Dales, yeah. And we went we went potholing? Yes. Yeah, so you remember that. So I think people think that it's a bit of a myth, this potholing thing, although Alice, <laughs> Alistair and Johnny have talked about it and still, still mention it. Um, but Chips, I remember at the... Um, at the hostel, the youth hostel place that we stopped, he created this little um, circuit in the uh, yard out the front with a little piece of scaffolding uh, plank that created like a seesaw and some slaloms. And then you had to go around and pick up a water bottle with your left hand and put it down in an, on the other side with your right hand. And all of those just little bits of control that everybody was scratching their heads wondering, well, what on earth has this got to do with triathlon? But Yeah, I used to love doing those. And we used to do the slow races in the car parks as well with each other. And yeah, I remember mm-hmm. doing those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it wasn't that first weekend you came. Was that the one when you were at Salford Dock? Yes, it was uh, when we did in the Salford Keys and we swam in the Salford Keys. Yeah. yeah. And that was, that was I don't know about um, how you found it because you were you were all pretty skinny you you triathletes <laughs> back then and and it was it was probably April or May I think and we had to do it because you needed some open water exposure before a race the next weekend which was a selection race for youth relays I think so we had to take everybody over there and get everybody in the water in their wetsuits and it was only about 12 or 13 degrees yeah and I remember literally being thrown in the deep end coming from a swimming background I'd never swum open water and I remember you and yourself, uh, Jack, gave me a, just gave me a wetsuit and was like, "Get in!" And I'd never swam open water before, and it was definitely a big shock to the system going in going in the Salford Keys. It was freezing. We we've developed a bit of compassion as coaches since then. <laughs> <laughs> but that I, I remember as well um, that we had to get Alistair out because he was he he wouldn't stop swimming, but he was he's, he was turning every time he came past. I kept saying to Jackie, "I'm sure he looks a bit bluer this time. You know, maybe we should get him to come out." No, no, I'm all right. I'm all right. Um, I should. I think everybody was probably a little bit blue when they when they got out of that water. Yeah. So, um, how long were you in the squad then? Do you think? So, I, th- I remember after that weekend, things happened pretty fast. Like we had to do the swim time trial and the run mm-hmm. time trial, and mm-hmm. then, um, you know, straight away was told, okay, effectively you're on the start program. So here's a bike, here's a wetsuit, here's a coach. Um, come to up to Leeds once a month or however long it was. Um, so yeah, it all, everything all happened pretty quickly, and it was like, here, do these races, these the selection races for like the European Youth Relays, um, which was my first uh, international race. And then obviously, as we that was for the youth, and then we went into the junior uh, development programs, which was a lot more competitive. Um, and then into the potential. So it, it would have been a good couple of years because I definitely went from youth to junior to potential. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be leading up to like the end of school, looking at going through the A levels into uni. That around that time, and I can I can specifically remember we we entered everybody into um into the uh, the relays that they used to have the team relays they have up, they had up in uh, Teesside I think I can't remember what the race was but they it was quite a popular event and it was it was a different sort of team relay format to the ones they have now. You, you, everybody did the swim, I think, one after the other. And then we had to do a team time trial on the bike. And then you all had to um, do a relay on the run. And I joined you to make up the four on the bike. And unfortunately, uh, so it was a good opportunity to race as a team and do through and off. 
and I sat at the back trying to coach you. And then we had a little bit of an incident, didn't we, where you got tangled up with one of the guys in front, just touched wheels and had a heavy had a heavy crash landing on your hip. I ca- I was just behind you, so I came off as well. Um, and then we had this awkward moment with you lying on the road. We were trying to make you comfortable. You were all under under 16, so I didn't want to leave you on your own. But uh, equally, we had to find um, some emergency services, didn't we? And so uh, I think it was a little painful for you. That was my first ever cycling crash. Like my bubble was burst. It's not all fun and games. <laughs> um, I actually remember you sitting at the side of the road with me and being like, Jess, it's okay. You're a proper cyclist now. You've you've come off. Everyone has to come off. <laughs> you have to get the road rash. Yeah, the road rash. I remember for weeks in bed afterwards, like the sheet sticking to me. And uh, yeah, that was. But yeah. you had, so I think you, you you had some pelvic problems as a result of that impact, didn't you? Because you just, it wasn't, it wasn't a nasty crash. You just landed quite heavily on your side. And I think that was what caused the damage. And there was a bit of, there was a bit of road rash as well. Um, yeah. And I still, to this day, what, 15 years later, still have issues from wow. that crash. Wow. Yeah. I am. Um, so I fractured my pelvis and it kind of wrote, my pelvis rotated on one side. And essentially for many years, I had one leg higher than the other. Mm-hmm. And got away with it for many years worked on it with a physio a lot but never fully fixed fixed the problem and even now like for example now when I'm squatting I'll start a set and I'll look down halfway through the set and my feet have shifted like because my hips aren't right and Mm -hmm. there and that does the older I've got the worse it's got in terms of causing me injuries lower down the body like in my in one of my calves basically um so it's and I know I've heard you speak about it in one of your other podcasts about how things can have a knock-on effect for years and just mm. travels it travels down that chain of of your body. Mm. So yeah, still suffering from that now, really. Mm. So did you did you manage to resume in the squad after that, or did you sort of um, lose, sort of get left behind a little bit, and then then you were off to university and everything, weren't you? Yeah. So um, I think I was. I took a bit of time off then, but I think um, I came back because I remember getting a new bike and getting a sponsorship from Cannondale. Um, and then that was when the same, that was when we were like juniors. Mm-hmm. And I remember the C, the Channel 4 series, the chorus series that was on Channel 4. So mm-hmm. I raced all of those. Um, it took me a while to recover, but I remember doing all those. And then um, once I did my GCSEs, I decided to, I actually decided to leave the squad because I wanted to go to Australia to train with the uh, Western Australian triathlon team. Mm-hmm. This is when I was 18. And they said to me, British Triathlon said to me, well, if you go, you're not going to be doing the races that we want you to do. So you're not going to have be on the funding, essentially. So I said, OK, because my plan was to go to Australia, train with the Australian team and then come back stronger. So that's when I was 18. That's what I did. I headed off. headed off to Australia. And how did how did that all work out then? You know, I mean, it's quite a big it's quite a big thing for somebody of 18 to go out to somewhere that you've, you know, totally new and uh, um, try and try and make a name for yourself because they're pretty they're pretty competitive, aren't they? Um, Australian triathletes. Yes, yeah, and it's something that I probably wouldn't do now. But being fearless at eighteen, I literally packed my bike into a bike box, took some money in my back pocket, and just flew out there. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have anywhere to stay, didn't know anyone. Just went to the went to one of the training sessions, a track session with the uh, the University of Western Australia triathlon team, and asked if I could join in. And then I ended up staying there for two years. It was only supposed to be a year, but I just loved it so much. Loved the training, loved the environment, um, loved the squad. Because I think, as you know, like when we were younger, I had to travel quite a long way to get to Leeds. 
I was mm. uh, very rural. I didn't have anyone to train with. And then suddenly I was in this big competitive mm. squad and it was so much fun. So, well, so what made you come back then? Visa problems. Oh. <laughs> yeah. My, basically, my visa ran out and you can't have the same visa twice. So I had to come back. But also, I, I was still in contact with British Triathlon and they were saying, you need to come back. You need to race. If you want to be selected for like international races, you've got to come and do the selection races. So I was like, okay, it's, I put the work in. Now it's time to come home, basically. Okay. And then what, what happened when she got back then? So when I got back, I did have a, I had a not what I expected kind of season. <laughs> um, I was actually in the shape of my life and I was feeling really, really good. Um, but like some things just didn't go to plan that season. Um, in the London, it was, I remember quite clearly the race that defined it was the London triathlon. And it was, it was always as an under 23 and as a junior, it was always your chance to race with the big dogs. Mm -hmm. It was your chance to race with the, the adults as such. Um, and I remember having a really, really good swim, um, came out of the water in, there's a lead pack of about of three of us. And I remember it was me. Julie Dibbons. Remember Julie Dibbons? I do, yeah. Yeah. And um, maybe Andrea Whitcomb, someone like that, or Jodie Swallow. And we actually had like a three-minute lead over the over the next pack, which mm -hmm. had the likes of Vicky Holland and, and Holly Abel and girls like that in it. And oh, and I felt amazing. And I was doing my turns on the bike, and I was like, you know, this is it. Like all that I've been working for. And then I had a blowout. Oh. Yeah. And that, that was, was that obviously that was it. That was the race over. And I don't think I don't think I ever recovered from that. That was like the end of the season, and um, yeah, and I just yeah, I don't know, <laughs> just didn't come really come back, really recover from that very well. Okay, and so d was was that sort of the end of your triathlon career at that point then, or oh. did you sort of come come back the next year and try again? Yeah, so then I um, had a bit of time off, came back, and then that was when I I purposely went to Loughborough University, mm -hmm. um, so that I could train with the high performance squad at Loughborough. So I, I chose that university for my degree purely, purely so that I could be with the high performance squad. Mm -hmm. um, so I trained there. Um, and I, I thought that was going to be just like Australia. It's going to be, you know, you're training with the best triathletes in the world. And at the time, it was it was the best place. The bar mm -hmm. wasn't quite established. Um, and obviously, Leeds wasn't a high performance center. So um, and that was a really good couple of years, like you're training, training with the best coaches and the best uh, athletes. Okay, I'm 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 in I'm in curious and intrigued to get on to how you end up in Dubai. Um, but let's let's talk about what happened. You you went to you went to Loughborough University. So were you doing sport and exercise science or? No, I was actually doing um, journalism. Oh wow! Yeah, my thought process was to go once I finished triathlon was to go into like the um, the journalism side of it, like the presenting side of triathlon. You know, a, a kind of a like bit like at races and uh, just reporting on races. That that was that was my goal. Mm hmm. Yeah, you could have been up there now with Tim Hemming reporting and running <laughs> yeah. to try 24 seven and being the uh, being the commentator on the uh, WTS stuff. Yeah. OK. Did you ever get a job in journalism or did by the end of the course, did you think no, I'm doing something else like most <laughs> students do? Well, no, actually, by the end of the course, it was there was lots of unpaid internships, uh, but they were all London based. And mm. I didn't know anyone in London, couldn't really afford to go. And work in London for free for a year after graduating. So my mom said to me, why don't you go over to Dubai and be a swim teacher for a year, save some money, and then come back and finish your, start your internships. Okay. 
But what, why Dubai, though? I mean, Dubai wasn't the centre then that it is now. No, but my, so the reason Dubai is that my mum was out here. So my mum was okay, working in Dubai right. in children's nurseries. And when I graduated and had this problem of, okay, I've graduated. I'm not sure where I want to go or what I want to do. She said, oh, come out to Dubai. And, you know, there's some really good swim teacher opportunities over here. Come out and work for a year. And then you can go back to the UK and carry on, which never happened. So, And what year was that then when you ended up or landed in Dubai for the first time? Well, I think I graduated in 2011. So it would have 2011. So basically straight after I finished Loughborough, I came out to Dubai. Yeah. Okay. And how did you find it working out there and the sort of the sports scene at that time? Um, so when I actually, so when I came out to Dubai, I'd actually, I'd actually stopped triathlon. Okay. Um, so I came out and um, just to work as a full-time swim teacher. Um, and I, I didn't even bring my bike with me. That was that came later. So at that time I was like, I'm not doing triathlon anymore. I was still into fitness, but I was like, I'm just going to come out here. Just going to swim teach for a year. And then and that was the head home. Mm-hmm. But in terms of triathlon, I wasn't involved in the triathlon scene here at all at the beginning. Okay. So the 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 next time that I hear about you is I'm scrolling through some Instagram posts and all of a sudden I see this girl that I know, Jess Towel. But the Jess Towel I knew was quite a tall, willowy figure with swimmer's shoulders and you know, long runner's legs. Um and not at all um not at all the sort of person I would associate with uh power cleans and snatches with very heavy weights <laughs> and yet the person i'm watching and because i you know i've got strength and conditioning background as well so the yeah. person i'm watching is executing some really good um power cleans uh, on some deep squats and i'm thinking wow i'm sure this is that's just jess towel and this isn't the jess <laughs> towel i know so um i i, I scrolled I, I followed you on instagram and looked through a, a few of your posts and saw that actually you'd got really into CrossFit and you were in competitions and there was a picture of you stood on a podium and um, there's some videos of you in, in the events. And I'm thinking, wow, that's an, a massive change. It's like a, a complete turnaround. So I'm, I'm really, I'd love to unpick that whole journey of how you got started in CrossFit and, and what motivated you because, you know, and no, no offense meant, but um, you would have been one of the last people I would have thought would have taken to that sort of type of training. Yeah. And I even think back, Simon, to when I was 15. And I remember you doing a strength and conditioning session with us. And I remember we were in this room and you were talking about these core muscles and how to engage, like get some core engagement. And I remember laying there being like, this is the most boring thing in the world. Like, yeah. You, know, like, you, you weren't the only one. <laughs> obviously, very young and didn't understand what we were doing. Um, but back then, it was, you know, you didn't need to do strength in my mind. You just need to go out and swim more and cycle more and run more. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're right. When you say I'm the last person you'd expect to to drift down that path, um, for sure. I mean, even when we were at Loughborough and we were exposed to strength and conditioning, we didn't we didn't really understand the actual benefit of it, which obviously now I've done a complete 180. Um, but how I got into that was... I started dating a powerlifter when I was in my last year at university. And, the, you know, like powerlifter, squat bench deadlift, huge, strong, strong guys, um, the complete opposite of what I was doing in triathlon. And I started to go to the gym with him. And he taught me to squat. He taught me to, to bench. And I remember trying to learn to squat with a, with a, a broomstick. You mm-hmm. know, I, just, I didn't have the mechanics for it. Um, yeah, and I remember as well not even being able to do a pull-up. I remember hanging on a pull-up bar and 
trying to do a pull-up and just flap just flapping around like had no strength at all when I started so I really did start from zero when it came to the the strength the strength side of things Mm. Um, so yes it started with squat bench deadlift and pull so like the four main um compound lifts um but CrossFit didn't really start until I got to Dubai Dubai CrossFit scene was quite big when I arrived here and it was labeled as a as a there's a competition that was advertised and it was labeled as a fitness competition and it was boy girl partner. So me and my boyfriend, we are both powerlifting. If you call that, that what I was doing at that time, we entered this competition, this fitness competition over two days. And I remember learning to do a snatch with a PVC pipe, like in the warm up area. And we just managed, we managed to come second in the competition and win wow. a lot of money. I think we came second because there was a lot of endurance events in there. There was, you know, because it's like the thing is with CrossFit is it's maybe 10 to 12 events over two days. Mm. So it's not, it doesn't all depend on one event. So at the end of these two days, and when we finished it, I thought, this is great. I've got all the strength work in here that I'm loving doing at the moment, or um, the compound lifts. But then I also have all the endurance in there too. Mm. So I was like, I really like this and I really enjoyed it. And the fact that I did well from the beginning kind mm. of obviously helped help with that um but don't get me wrong it took many 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 years mm-hmm. many 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 hours to learn for example just to snap with an empty barbell before i started putting weight on the bar and um obviously coming from a triathlon background only having slow twitch muscle fibers it took so long to, tr- to try and learn just to be a bit faster and a bit more powerful mm. and a bit more explosive mm. yeah uh, most of the triathletes that that i've worked with over the years both at the elite level and you know the junior elites like you you were in that squad and um the age groupers uh, often end up in endurance sports because they don't have that hand-eye coordination that speed of movement deftness of foot movement that allows them to do team sports well so they sort of get oh you'd be better off running which is probably how alistair and johnny ended up as runners and swimmers because they didn't particularly have the build for um playing in the rugby team at a rugby school and I, and I think that's probably the same for a lot of triathletes um yeah. and doing something like a clean and jerk or a snatch is very much there's a there's a lot of coordination needed it's timing it's explosive to explosivity you've got to move really quickly because you're not really when once you get up to heavy weights you're not really lifting the bar very much you're actually trying to get underneath it and lifting it as less uh, as little as possible aren't you and that requires a great deal of speed and coordination and and Actually, what surprises most people is you need to be very, very mobile uh, and yeah. flexible in order to um, in order to be a, a good weightlifter. Uh, yeah, and those you have to sit in the bottom of a snatch, like really yeah. deep in the bottom of a snatch, and then stand it up. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of flexibility in the ankles, hips, shoulders, thoracic. Yeah. When I when I tell people that this, you know, on average, the second most flexible group of people at at, um, at the Olympics are. Uh, weightlifters they're like no don't be silly but i actually you you look at them like you say to if you try doing an overhead squat and being able to to do that properly and yeah. balance it and not drop the bar on your head or you know over your back you've got to be really flexible in all of those joints haven't you particularly yeah. around the shoulders yes i mean the vast majority of people can't even squat without keeping their heels down for example so mm. you know and then work up the chain it's, it's uh yeah they're very flexible powerlifters and weightlifters so, so you joined you joined a CrossFit gym. So tell me what what was your what was your introduction to uh, to 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 Olympic lifting? Then you know you said you had to lift with a PVC pipe. Um, 
how long did it take before you felt like you could actually execute a lift with weights with the degree of technical um, excellence? So I did like what most CrossFitters would do, which is probably why it has a bit of a bad rep and just try to go heavy quickly with, mm -hmm. with bad technique. So I'd go in the gym and everyone else in the class would be lifting not just empty barbells, but with weights on for snatch and clean and jerk. And I would, I would try in that. And then I got to a certain point where I wasn't, I wasn't progressing with any of my lifts. Mm -hmm. And then I would video myself and obviously have a coach looking at me. And it's like, well, the reason you're not progressing is because the technique's just not there. So then I had to bite my ego as such and go back to the beginning again and learn with a PVC pipe. Mm -hmm. um, and that paid off so much, like hours and hours of snatching, facing a wall, like with my nose against the wall so that I didn't swing the bar out from, from, mm -hmm. from my hips and, and things like that. Um, and then just trying to be more explosive, going from like being such a slow, everything for me was slow, like being, being a long distance, well, an athlete, endurance athlete, trying to be more explosive with everything that took, it didn't happen overnight. And I think that's why I enjoyed it because it was so different. It was something that was hard for me, not, didn't come easy. And then on top of that, you have all with CrossFit, you have all the gymnastics you need to learn. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm just thinking when you talk about, um, lifting very close to the wall so you can keep the bars close to your body and then just get underneath it rather than because when when you're using a light bar or a pvc pole it's very easy to use bad technique and throw the weight out in front of you because you can catch it but you can't do that when you've got 50 or 100 kilos yeah. on the bar and um i mean it's the same when you're teaching people how to do kettlebell snatches isn't it when the light ones seem to keep hitting you on the hand because you can lift them badly and still get them overhead yeah. Um, and the classic is the bruises right on the back of people's arm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But when you think back to swimming, swimming is swimming fast is still mostly an aerobic sport with really good efficiency. And and then, you know, the, the sprinters can obviously turn their arms over very quickly. Um and and in order to become a good swimmer, you need to spend hours working on your techniques. So I suppose one thing that would have helped you would have been uh, a performance mindset. Yeah. Definitely. And that's probably been ingrained in me from a very, very young age because I started competitively swimming at six. Um, and that was my background. And like you say, swimming is just re repeat, repeat, repeat morning and night. Um, so I've, without a doubt, that's paid off now later on and given me that mindset to, uh, to when something's challenging and I can't do something, it makes me it makes me want to do it more, it makes yeah. me want to put the hours in, put the effort in. Yes. Um, I find it more interesting when something's hard. OK. Um the other thing that I didn't recognize was the physique of this girl that I was watching. You, you clearly packed on a fair amount of muscle, but you can't pack on muscle like that without eating appropriately as well. And I guess when you, when you're doing CrossFit, it's not about the muscle, is it? The muscle is a byproduct of the training that you're doing rather than an, an, a, um, a, a, pre, a priority intention. But what, what, what were the changes that you had to make in terms of your nutrition? Um, I think it's hard to tell because I think as, as I've grown and as I've learned more, like, I, you know, like all the research that comes out, the latest research, the latest books, um, obviously now I feel like there's much more focus on nutrition than there was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, did that coincide with me, with me changing into weightlifting, CrossFit powerlifting, or, or is it because I became more aware of it because the sport was different? So it's very hard because obviously I'm learning all the time as a coach um uh, nutritional different nutritional ideas and stuff but um I always remember as a triathlete um especially once we got to Loughborough and it was very competitive was that it was always just the smaller you are the better 
the skinnier mm-hmm. you are, the better, right? It's better to undereat than to overeat and, and things like that. And um, whereas as soon as I started CrossFit and weightlifting, if you don't eat, you can't lift. Like, mm-hmm. you, it, you know, like it's better to lift in the afternoons because you've got a couple of meals in you already. And that was a big thing, like fueling to be able to do high intensity and more explosive movements and heavy weights um, was a big thing. And my diet became more, a lot more protein focused. Okay. I think with, with the weight training and stuff, uh, diet became more about recovery. Whereas in triathlon, it was more about fueling for a six hour ride that's coming up as I kind of flipped it a little bit. Don't get me wrong. I still fuel for workouts now and when I'm lifting heavy, but my priorities are always how much protein am I getting post workout and I'm going to recover ready for the next session as mm. compared to compared to what it used to be. Yeah. And I remember um, back in back in the 2000s, the early 2000s, there was a bit of a toxic culture, wasn't there, around nutrition? I know Jody Swallows talked about it. Holly Avil was there, um, Natalie Barnard as well. And they were all in that squad. And it, I guess I guess that they're if you've got everybody sort of being competitive, but also comparing and and and, and getting messages that you need to be a bit lighter um you you know you're not going to you're not going to cut the mustard at this race if you're a kilo heavier than everybody else so everybody's looking at ways in which they can cut calories and body fat and that becomes competitive in itself and the, and then you get the conversations around what are you eating oh that much you know and and so then it then it sort of steamrolls yeah and i was i was at Loughborough right in that time frame when all that toxicity was happening um and it was so competitive with each other because, you know, like, for example, Holly might go and run a really, really fast race. And we're like, oh, Holly, how did you do that? And she's like, well, I lost five kilos from last month. And it was it became like this spiral of you want to do. And then obviously pressure from coaches as well. But I think some of that was looking back at it now as, as a lot of an older person was just naive, naivety, you know, mm-hmm. they didn't know any better than to mm-hmm. tell a 14 or uh, 15 year old girl that she needs to lose weight. Um but yeah, it was always drilled into us that, that you smaller, you're going to run faster, you're going to be a better triathlete. Uh, whereas in 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 CrossFit and in weightlifting, it's drilled into you that the bigger you are, the stronger you are, um, yeah. the better you are. And actually, if you look at it now from our perspective, healthier, like mm-hmm. like in terms of like life longevity and and you know this this pension scheme that you talk about as being older, you know, mm-hmm. are you paying into that now as opposed to just taking away from it all the time? I'm um, glad you've been listening to the podcasts. No, I, I, I list, I, that one I really agreed with because it's something that is something that's I've been looking at the last couple of years, um, mm. especially since I've changed my view from just wanting to be a skinny triathlete to being my goal is to be bigger and to be stronger and to be healthier. And obviously, muscle muscle mass is the key to to longevity. And and as we get older, we want to try and maintain muscle mass as much as we can to, to try and starve off the aging process. <laughs> What's really interesting to me is there are two female products from Loughborough who have ended up in this um, building muscle and uh, competing. The other's Alice Hector, who you probably know. And Alice, I, I saw a, a picture of Alice on, that popped up on my Facebook page. And I'm like, my goodness, Alice used to be this skinny triathlete, which she mm-hmm. talks about. And now there's this Amazonian female on stage with broad shoulders and yeah. abs to die for. Mo- I know most people would kill for those abs. And there she is holding a trophy for being first in a physique competition and um, posting about her training in the gym and everything. And again, it's a complete 180 degree approach to life, isn't it? And training. Yeah. It's great to see that, actually. It's great. 
Um, yeah. We uh, Alice was on the podcast a few months ago, and we had a really good conversation about that. And she talked about the performance mindset, but how it's all different, you know, um, nutrition and dieting and um, that, but that whole thing about recovery. And again, completely alien to a triathlete who's trying to be lighter and skinnier versus trying to build muscle and having to force the food down. Yeah, it's completely opposite. When I first started um, competing in CrossFit, sometimes we, that was, those are the days when macros really came into it, right? So we actually had apps that would track mm -hmm. as a as a CrossFitter, are you eating enough food, which we didn't have 20 years ago. Um, so that helped a lot. But even just like, I remember at eight o'clock at night, sitting at the kitchen table, trying to eat bowls of rice just to help the recovery and just so that I was ready for the, for the, for the next day of training, which we, I would never have done that as a triathlete. Mm. I've watched some of the uh, CrossFit Games videos on Netflix, and I find those really interesting. I, I watch them because I'm a. I like I like watching the, the you know the competitions, but I also like watching the techniques and um and and I I just I just I'm really interested in that whole process, you know, as a coach of of how they do it and the differences between that maybe and, and other sports. Um, do you? The CrossFit that we see there, I know when, when we not the games, but when we see the backgrounds and you see them all working out, and that there was some documentaries on Rich Froning, and then after Rich, there was the guy from America. Um, I can't think of his name. It's, he's he's an amazing lifter. Uh, Matt Fraser. Got, yeah, Matt Fraser. That's right. There's there's a couple of documentaries about him, um, lifting and uh, and all of that. Um, and then there's some stuff around the girls from Iceland. Yes, the Icelandic and, girls. Um, is, do you recognize that that whole um, community and way of training as the way you train in Dubai or are they completely different? No, it's completely the same. And a lot of those guys come here to train in the in the warm weather. And um, like we're friends with a lot of them. We, you know, like, like kind of like we do in triathlon, we train in like little squads and we go to the competitions together. Dubai has some huge competitions and a lot of them come here pre, pre the CrossFit Games as their warmer weather training. So yeah, it's exactly the same. What is it about the the Icelandic girls? And is it just that's a culture that's this one that's done really well, and it encourages the others, and then they build that little community, and it, they feed off each other. Um, they, like say, little... they say it's something in the water. So how <laughs> come you how come you're not living in Iceland? Then? <laughs> yeah, I know. Go and drink the water from Iceland. Yeah, the the daughters they are absolutely incredible athletes. They are they are they are insane. Yes, I certainly wouldn't want to get into an argument with any of them. No, they're big girls. <laughs> do they? I mean, are they big girls? Do they? Do they start off as statuesque people who then just hone their bodies, or have they built themselves up from what would have been average-looking humans? They've actually they've built themselves up over years and years of of strength training, um, and they are huge. Like I stand next to them, so this is always funny to me when I go to a really high-level prospect competition. Hmm. I am like the skinniest, smallest girl on the start line mm. and then when I go to a triathlon these days I'm the biggest girl on the start line so mm -hmm. I've kind of fallen into this middle category between a, a triathlete physique and a crossfit physique and I'm kind of stuck in the middle because those girls make me look tiny yeah when I'm uh, yeah they are big strong girls is it is it a girl called is it Samantha Briggs Samantha Briggs, yes. She's, yeah, the, she's, actually, she's, she's, she's from she's from Yorkshire, isn't she? And she was a firefighter because yeah. one of my friends knows her, I think, when they were in the service together. Yeah, so she's actually the great, the, the best British um, crossfitter of all time. Yeah. Uh, and she was always endurance-based. So she was always known as the endurance girl of CrossFit. Um, mm. I've been lucky enough to compete with her a few times. Um, yeah, she's got a, quite a similar physique to me. Like, not not massive, but, 
you can see that she's muscly and also does highlight quite a bit of endurance here. Mm-hmm. What was it? Was it? Um, was it a priority goal for you to gain muscle? Then you know, did you know, did you have to work at that, or did it? Was it just a byproduct of the training and the eating? My priority for many years was to just to get strong or get okay. stronger. Right. I was so weak, like not being able to do a pull up, for example. So my goal for probably probably four or five years at the beginning was just strength, and I had to eat to get strong. That was always drilled into me. So the way I looked wasn't really. Uh, in my head it was more like I need to eat to get stronger to hit these percentages to hit these numbers and try and catch up with the other girls mm-hmm. and then in the end it became a, like you say a byproduct of the training mm. and when we think about the tr- triathlon training you were doing then at, when you were at Loughborough what what would have been your wor- weekly average so I was think? thinking about that I think we used to do probably above 15 hours a week it was very a lot of work yeah. Two hours, two hours strength and conditioning a week, um, which obviously didn't take seriously. You know, sometimes, you know, when you look back and you think, oh, I wish I knew then what I know now in mm-hmm. terms of strength training. Yeah, I didn't. So two hours of strength training a week and then um, two or three times a day we'd be training. It was very intense at Loughborough. And then you had the competitive environment of all the girls as well. Um, so. 15 hours a week that sounds that sounds quite light actually for Loughborough I would have thought it would have been nearer well, to 20 but I guess it's yeah I might, I guess I might it, be being it, yeah it and, yeah. and it, obviously it depends on what you can cope with and what you what your work schedule would have been like for your, your degree and everything um You're probably right it was probably it was probably a bit more than that yeah because you'd have probably been swimming four or five times a week and those would have been 90 minute sessions wouldn't they so there's at yeah. least six or seven hours of swimming um quite a lot of biking I would have thought maybe not quite as much running a lot of cycling, maybe three or four times a week, yeah, and then three times run. Yeah, so yeah, you're so, probably looking at twenty. And so, how does that compare to your average CrossFit training week then, in terms of hours? Hours. So CrossFit, that this is something that I really enjoyed when I first started CrossFit was that you could get a lot done in a short space of time. Mm-hmm. So you could, you could, for example, if you just go to a CrossFit class and you're not training on your own, everything's done within an hour, one hour class. And within that hour, you might have done back squats at the beginning, and then you might have done some metabolic conditioning at the end, working on some skills of your gymnastics. So you can essentially fit fit enough in in one hour a day, mm-hmm. which I thought was great because I'd gone from doing, like you say, four or five, six hours a day um, <laughs> to suddenly being able to finish my training in a day, but but honestly still being just as tired because different energy systems. Um, but then as I started to get good at CrossFit, and started to get to like a world class level where I was competing at the world at the world championships. That's when I started to branch away from this one hour, and I would do probably ninety minutes in the morning and ninety minutes in the afternoon. So probably like three hours a day, every day or five or six days a week. We used to work on a like three days on, one day off. So you do work, yeah, three days and then a recovery day, three days and then a recovery. Okay, wow, still a and lot of training. Be, yeah, and it would be. The strength stuff would be in the afternoons and the conditioning and endurance work would be in the mornings. So because you tend to lift better in the afternoon. Well, well, and I think there's some research that supports the fact that the body's hormonal state responds better to strength training in the afternoon, doesn't it? So yeah. uh, if you're doing anaerobic type stuff, so inter- interval training on the bike or the runs, probably better around three or four o'clock, any aerobic stuff in the morning and, and and that that type of conditioning. And and actually when you're getting out, when you've got up and you, you know, your body's only been moving around for a couple of hours you're probably better off not doing um 
stuff that requires great coordination at that time of day. Yes, definitely not. You don't want to be snapping at five o'clock in the morning. <laughs> no, not if you can help it. Um, so what about the swimming and the cycling and the running then? You know, did you just did you just completely switch off that tap and go straight into the strength training, or did you still I guess there was there was still some enjoyment for those sort of things. So did did you do that in your part time or did you just not have enough energy for any of those? So for for a few years, I didn't I didn't touch my bike. I did, I was like I don't want to cycle. When I did triathlon, that was my least favorite of the three, and I just lost interest in the cycling. So I didn't touch that. Um, I ran, but only running in CrossFit. So when I needed to in the CrossFit classes. Um, and actually, I was really lucky that I have um, I have a world record in CrossFit. Wow. Yeah, Which I is... was really lucky. So it was an event that's called Triple Three, and it is a three kilometer row 300 double unders now a double under is when the rope goes under your feet twice right mm-hmm. so 300 of those and then a three mile run wow um and then we had that at the the world championships of crossfit and uh, yeah I, I won um that because it was in my wheelhouse like, like even though i hadn't done it for many years my triathlon background was still there my endurance background was still there and um yeah i did really well in that because most CrossFit workouts aren't longer than 20 minutes. They generally tend to be under 20 minutes. So yeah. although I hadn't done any endurance for many years, it, it was still I was still able to pull that one out of the bag. Yeah, and for anybody who's not tried it, um, firstly, skipping. I've talked about skipping quite a lot with the physios because it's a it, it's it's quite a good exercise for for getting some foot and ankle conditioning and getting that generating that ping. Double unders require a fair bit of spring off each off each landing in order to be able to get the, the cable round twice and a huge amount of timing and to do 300 of those double unders how long will that take you three two me, or three minutes yeah it took me because on, i did it unbroken did it without resting it took me just under three minutes yeah so you get you're working at quite high intensity as well to be able to do that aren't you so that's that's almost like a vo2 max effort to get that, that was, done. yeah yeah um so there's a fair amount of conditioning in those. I've I've tried to do double unders, and all I get is sort of like bruised bruised calves where I keep <laughs> keep flicking myself with the uh, on the back with the with the cable. I could do one or two, and then I lose my timing. The newest thing now is that um, double unders are too easy, so now we have triple unders. <sighs> yeah, it's like as the sport progresses, things become easy because everyone can do them. So then they just keep pushing the boundaries. <laughs> So what's the technique for doing double unders then? Let's let's stick with those because I don't think many of us will be able to even do you know, one of those. Um, you know the the running drill, ankling? Yeah. Yeah, like that is the best way to describe a double under or like pogos when you're, when you're trying to stay really stiff with the hips, knees and yeah. ankles and trying to keep the ankles under and then okay. landing on the balls of your feet, thinking about yeah. the contact time with the floor. Yeah. That's the I think that's the best way to think about it is to get that pogo leap and then the hand, obviously the hand coordination as well. Yeah, and what's the best sort of rope? Are you using one of these cable ropes? Like, um... yeah, so the the speed ropes, which are like wires, they move really quick. If you're trying to mm. use a rope that you just find in the gym, obviously they're quite thick and heavy, and they're not going to go under fast enough for yeah. you to for you to get. Yeah, you have to have a specific rope, otherwise it's going to be really difficult. Yeah, I did. I used to have a leather boxers rope, which was quite good for that, but I guess even that wouldn't be fast enough because you need them. You need the momentum, don't you, as well, to be able to keep that going. Yeah. Yeah. And and good wrist strength because to keep your wrists in that position, flicking that skipping rope around for three minutes, uh, it's, it's requires a yeah, little it, bit of wrist you conditioning. You feel it in your wrists and your shoulders actually. When once you start getting high reps. Yeah. Okay. Um, wow. Yeah. So, um, tell us about a typical CrossFit competition then, so, or or isn't or isn't there any such thing as a typical CrossFit competition? 
that's kind of the beauty of CrossFit um, is that you never know what you're going to get. So usually CrossFit competitions are two to three days long and you have several events each day. So you'll mm-hmm. do maybe three, four, five events in one day. You've got very little recovery time between events. And generally, you don't know what's coming. Um, and I think that's the main reason why I fell in love with it. I went from doing monostructural work for hours and hours and hours every day as a triathlete into doing these competitions where you've just got no idea what's coming and it's over two or three days. So how do you, well, how do you train for something like that then when you don't know what's coming? You know, do you just have to have a really wide ranging program so that, yeah. that, that you're reasonably skilled at everything um, and, and then just hope that they put in some of your favorites? Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, another reason why I love it so much is because you have to train for everything. So, you you know, you can't just be strong. If you're strong, but you're not fit, you're not going to do well. If you're fit, but you're not strong or you haven't got the high skill gymnastics, you've been a CrossFitter is trying to be as well-rounded as possible mm. across all areas, which is which is what I really enjoy about it. And I guess occasionally you find out that they've put in some endurance running or some swimming, which makes you do somersaults, I guess. <laughs> That is the biggest bonus. Like when I found out at this world championships that they had this triple for free event, I was like, this is mine. This is in the bag. I know that triathletes, I'm not going to be able to run three miles like as fast as I can. And, you know, I've done events before where they've put in a, um, an 18 kilometer bike, like time trial, like one minute apart, but mm. everyone has to use a similar bike. Can't have clip-ins. It has to be trainers. So everyone's on an evil playing field. Oh, all the triathletes were losing it. Oh, I can't, I don't know how to change gears. I don't know how to do this. I was like, thank you for giving me this, this 18 kilometer bike. Um, so some, sometimes it's great. We had another event once that was the, the big 25 kilo weight plates that you get in the gym. They put five of them in the deep end of a swimming pool and you had to push the weight plate all the way to the shallow end underwater and then take it and then go swim back, get the next one. And I remember the prize money for that was about three thousand pounds for, for this this event, and uh, CrossFitters can't even hold their breath to get down to the plates, right? And then there's mm-hmm. me just swimming along the bottom, pushing the plates along, just having a nice time. And so sometimes it's my background in triathlon has really really helped me in the yeah. in the CrossFit. Wow, but do they not have any standard events? Then I guess every every competition I've seen has some element of weightlifting in there. Um, so there's usually something like a clean, uh, a clean and jerk or a, a power press or um, snatches for time or something. Yeah, they have. Um, so either a clean and jerk or a snatch. But sometimes you, the heavy lift, like the one rep max might be a snatch. So then they'll have clean and jerks in a workout. So you're working mm-hmm. at like a lower percentage for more reps or they might yeah. do it the other way around. So, you know, generally that you're going to get a clean and jerk, a snatch or a variation of them, power clean thruster, some mm-hmm. kind of explosive uh, weightlifting movement there's, there's always going to be that and you know there's always going to be high skill gymnastics in there mm. but how it's going to come the rep schemes and stuff you you don't know mm. the the one thing that always concerns me when i watch crossfit and, and when i read some of the crossfit wads um that that people publish on their their facebook pages is that there are certain and i think perhaps this doesn't it maybe doesn't apply to people like yourself who've got good technique and been working on that technique, but certainly for a lot of the um, people who are doing it recreationally to keep fit is that you've got these exercises like overhead, overhead squats or snatches for time. And I'm thinking people are doing an exercise to get so many reps or for so long when they haven't got particularly good technique and that 
that then the potential for something to go wrong is quite high, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's why CrossFit in the past has had a bit of a bad reputation. And I, I coach CrossFit now, and it's something that's really hard as a coach. You have people coming into your class, and mm. they're not ready to be doing anything more than a PVC pipe, but they don't want to do the PVC pipe. Mm. They're looking around, and everyone's snatching more than they are, and they, the ego kicks in, and they want to lift heavy. But you know as a coach that they're not ready to do that. They're not. They haven't. They can't even do a plastic pipe, you know. So it's such a battle as a coach because you want them to enjoy it as well, but they don't enjoy it because they want to go heavy. And it's a constant battle to try and get people to scale things down and not just look at the CrossFit games on TV and, and want to be like, be like them. Because the average person's that's not what that's not what they need. The average mm. person should be coming to the gym just for longevity, not so they can rip their shoulder in the in the first mm. week. So how do you, what, what tactics do you employ then as a coach to try and, because uh, I would imagine that that's mostly men that are uh, that are like that, that are ego-driven and wanting to lift as heavy as they can and go as hard as they can and walk out as smashed as they can. <laughs> yes, it is. And, and it's the other way around with women. It's hard to get them to go heavier. They're mm-hmm. more than ready to, to add a little bit of weight and they don't want to. Mm-hmm. And with the men, it's trying to peel back their ego and get them to go lighter. And sometimes you win and sometimes you don't. Like I just say to them as a coach, look, I'm telling you that you're not ready to be doing this overhead position or or whatever movement it is. Um, and I try and encourage them to go lighter. Sometimes I I try to give them dumbbells instead of barbells because they can then feel like they're going heavier, but they're not putting themselves in compromising mm-hmm. positions with a barbell. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is difficult and it's difficult to get girls to go heavy. Do you find it difficult working with the guys as a female uh, or do or does your does your status within the CrossFit world also command a certain amount of respect with all of your clientele? So it, in the CrossFit side of things, I actually have more male clientele. Um, but bizarrely, I always I always have this um, in the back of my mind because I coach a lot of triathletes as well. I have mm. a lot of male triathletes that come to me wanting coaching, especially locals, like local Emiratis. And I think it's in the back of my mind like, oh, they, they actually want a female to coach them? Okay. So I think I have the stigma in my mind more than more than the clientele do. Mm. Um, so, and I can see that you're wearing that T-shirt that says "Inner Fight." Is that is that the company you work for? Yes, yeah. So it's a big company uh, here based in Dubai, and it's a great company in that we have uh, where we have two sides of the company: the gym side, which is CrossFit strength and conditioning side, and then we have the triathlon side. Um, two big separate parts of the company. Mm. So for me. It's the best of both worlds. I get to do the two most things that I'm passionate passionate about and coach the two sports that I'm passionate about. Mm. And I don't think I'd find that anywhere else in the world, to be honest. Are you are you the only one that crosses over then and does both? Yes. So yeah. we have the triathlete coaches that are completely one end and the CrossFit coaches the other. And there's <laughs> me in the middle trying to cross-pollinate and trying to get the triathletes <laughs> to do strength and the strength to do endurance. And it's just me in the middle. I've been trying to get triathletes to... Uh been more engaged with strength training now for almost 30 years i wrote i wrote my first article for 220 magazine in 1995 and i don't know if you ever came across chris jones you might have done um but chris chris was running a company called one vision then which was a private company that he, he'd set up before before even british triathlon had performance centers and chris rang me up and said i really want to know more about this that that's what you'd expect from a coach like chris because he was always curious and wanting to look at other ways of um ways of training that might improve performance um, but but even now when I'm delivering for British Triathlon on the on the sort of strength and conditioning modules, um, 
there are people there that are coaches that say, yeah, yeah, I think this is a great idea. Do you do it yourself? Oh, no, no. But I, I encourage all of my athletes to, to you know, and um, I feel like we're winning the battle a little bit, but it's still a hard sell, isn't it? Oh, for it's, it's so difficult. And I've, I've actually put on in my gym specialist classes for triathletes, strength classes. So they're not mm-hmm. intimidated by anyone else. And it's really specific work that we need as triathletes it's full body but we focus more on hips and hamstrings and glutes and mm-hmm. um but even then i have to drag them to the gym and like mm-hmm. you know i have to put it in their training peaks over and over again and if you look at a triathlete's training peaks generally what is red is a strength mm-hmm. always every week yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and the mobility work and the things that they need to be doing and i try and educate the triathletes that i coach i try so hard to educate them that well, especially at certain times of the year, strength should be the priority over going out and running or go, you know, going for that swim mm. session. Sometimes strength is more important. You're going to get more benefit from it. Um, but yeah, like you say, it's a hard battle. It's such a hard battle. And I've been on both ends. I've been the triathlete that was listening to you telling yeah. me to do core work. I yeah. was like, oh, Simon, I don't want to do core work. And now I'm completely the opposite. And what's interesting is, so when I stopped doing triathlon completely and only did strength and conditioning, I didn't do any running for like maybe two years. Then I entered a 5K running race and still ran 18-minute 5K. Mm. And I was like, that's just off strength training. And then that got me thinking, and then I started researching more about like how, you know, I'm not telling people not to run, but you can strength training is really, really important. I've had on the podcast recently Bobby McGee, who's a strength coach from the States, and um, coming up in a couple of weeks, I've got Matt Pendola who works with Bobby McGee and they've created this thing called Run Form. And their their whole thing, Matt, Matt, Matt's also a strength coach. And so Run Form is all about drills and posture and um elasticity and you know using your using your fascia and just elastic recoil and, and just having your body in what Bobby calls the right shape. And when when they get folks to do that program, I, I think they really encourage them to drop the volume and focus yeah. on the drills and the, and the specific run strength and it, even at that even at that level he says it's it's quite a hard sell to and but then when folks do exactly what you've done they spend less time running and then they come back and they run faster and like how's that happened well yeah. it, it, exactly because you're using your body more effectively now because you've got some strength and now you're using that strength to help you run forward rather than just focusing on your heart and lungs yeah absolutely and you've got that core to extremity you're using the correct muscles Mm. Uh, yeah, exactly. And you're more efficient using less energy. I know. I wish I wish that they would listen. <laughs> well, you've 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 got to keep trying, Jess. Don't give up because it sounds like you're doing a good job. I, I'm going back to the CrossFit a bit. You know, the other thing that always impressed me when I was watching those um Netflix programs was how engaged those athletes were with their recovery. You would always see them after training working on the foam roller. Um stretching and working on the mobility now some of that's to do with that mobility they need as we talked about for for the lifting and getting in the best positions but i think it's also a it's also um an awareness that the training doesn't have as much value without the mobility and without the recovery part to allow that adaptation to take place yeah absolutely and and we talked about it earlier about the nutrition of recovery that's as a crossfitter that's drilled into you but also um the time every day for mobility mobility is huge and like the ice baths and the foam rolling and there's lots of like you know like the gadgets nowadays like the 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 electrical stimulation devices basically Mm -hmm. matt fraser always said that to be good at crossfit you just need to be good at recovery because 
there's, there's so many events in a competition over three, two or three days. You can you can do event one and do really well, but if you're not recovered for event two, you're immediately going to drop down that leaderboard. So it becomes more about how can I recover harder as opposed to train harder sometimes. Well, you can And that's apply. something that we neglect, right? We neglect. Everyone tends to neglect. Like I said a minute ago, if I look at some athletes' training peaks, the mobility, the stretching, the recovery is red because that's low on their priority list when in CrossFit it's really high on the priority list. Well, I'm thinking that you probably need to be good at recovery to be a good triathlete as well, especially if you're trying to train twice a day because you've got to recover from that first session to get the most out of that second session, haven't you? Yeah, and in Dubai we struggle quite a bit with that recovery between sessions because of the heat. Mm -hmm. So we'll do a track session on a Tuesday morning and um, although we do adjust paces and we do adjust the session because of the ridiculous humidity and heat, generally no matter how much you drink and replace in the day you're still going to be affected in the afternoon from from that session in the morning it's very difficult mm-hmm. to recover mm-hmm. um yeah well t- talking of recovery one of the last posts i saw from you was about how things had, it was a photo and it said and this is where things started to go wrong and i'm i'm looking at this photo of you <laughs> uh, at the top of a press or a snatch couldn't quite work out what it was uh, but your shoulder doesn't look to be exactly the right position for completing that lift um and so I, I assumed from that, um, which is what I'm going to ask you about now, that uh, you'd suffered a, quite a nasty shoulder injury. Can you can you share a little bit about that and and then how it's affected your training and performance going forwards? Yeah. So I um, as four months ago now, I was doing a it was a global CrossFit competition. So it's um, the CrossFit Open, which is like basically like a global leaderboard. And I was at the end of a workout and it was a one rep max thruster, which is a one rep max squat clean into like an overhead press, but it has to be in one movement. And as a bit of a backstory, I hadn't realized, but the week before in another CrossFit competition, I had torn my subscapula in my shoulder. So I had obviously some weak instability in there before I did this lift, which I wasn't aware of. Went to push, I think it was 80 kilos, went to push 80 kilos over my head and the bar went slightly too far backwards. And then I tripped over someone behind me and I tried to stop the bar going behind me and my shoulder just popped. Um, So really severe shoulder dislocation, um, which I had to go in the ambulance and had to go to into theater. I didn't have, so I chose not to have surgery, but it took them four hours to get it back in. It was very difficult to get back in. Um, And that's hard because, well, you know, any severe injury is hard because you Mm -hmm. lose your identity as such. You can't Mm -hmm. do what you want to do. Um, but I was back coaching the next day. I went back to the gym the next day in my sling. I was like, I'm not going to stop. Obviously, I had to stop my own personal training. Um, but that was, I would say that's the first time I've been severely injured in my entire life. So I have been really, really lucky. And this wasn't an injury from like overuse or something. It was like a traumatic, you know, a freak accident as such. So, yeah. um, so in the last four months of my life has been basically trying to beat the odds of what the doctor said and rehab as much as I could. So I was told I wouldn't be able to swim for a year, but I was back in the pool after four weeks. Um, <laughs> they didn't know who they were dealing with, did they? No. <laughs> I was working alongside a very, very good physio daily um, and and doing everything that I was supposed to, like spending more than an hour a day on my rehab. And so I think that's why I progressed um, fast. Yeah. Rehab is always really interesting, isn't it? Because often particularly maybe not for injuries like that but for a lot of athletes the rehab is the stuff they should have been doing beforehand to make sure they didn't get injured absolutely 
pre, their prehab that's that's there but they don't they don't do it yeah we, and also we, I found with some guys they have like this rehab protocol and then as soon as the pain stops they stop doing it mm-hmm. and I'm like it's like antibiotics you don't stop because because they've gone away you need it should be something that you do every single day to stop it coming back um, when when you were in that talent ID program I don't know if you remember that we used my um had a business partner and we had a physio clinic in in uh, Leeds and when I used to go out into the reception area and collect my personal training clients who were waiting, there'd be physio clients waiting as well. And occasionally you'd see the same people coming back in periodically. Uh, and I remember one one guy was sitting there and said, oh, hello, how are you doing? We're not seeing you for a while. No, well, it's my back again. Oh, oh, good. Didn't, didn't we get that sorted? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, what happened then? Oh, well, I stopped doing the exercises. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what the same. We get it here. Yeah. Um, the other thing, uh, it might seem from what I'm saying here that I'm a stalker of your Facebook pages, but I'm, <laughs> I'm always interested to, uh, you know, when I have interesting people to follow to see what they're up to. And occasionally, you know how it is, just things pop up on you on your screen when you open up. And I was surprised to see uh, a picture of you jumping out of an aeroplane. I'm like, hold on a minute. I thought she was supposed to be rehabbing. Turns out it's been going on a little bit longer than that. Yes. Um, so, so tell me about that then. So... Three, about three years ago now, I I started skydiving randomly. As you um, do, yeah. <laughs> it was it was just after COVID, and there was no races, there was no triathlon races, there was no CrossFit competitions, and you know, I was a little bit bored. And it it was just something that I kind of fell into was I'm um, doing my uh, AFF license. So basically, that's doing my license to to be able to jump solo on my own anywhere in the world. You realise what you did there, didn't you? Saying you fell into it. <laughs> fell into it I fell into it. um and so when you learn to skydive it's it's eight jumps you do eight jumps and you do ground school and then after the eight jumps you have your license and you can basically jump anywhere in the world on your own and now I've been doing that for three years now mm-hmm. um and it is so addictive mm-hmm. yeah you're just a bit of an adrenaline junkie really aren't you yeah well obviously when you skydive it's that hot like the happy hormone cocktail um you know, adrenaline, serotonin, dopamine, the high you feel, you just, you, you land and then you just immediately want to go again. And mm-hmm. I kind of feel like though that happy hormone cocktail is the same as competing. Like when you've, when you finished a CrossFit workout or you've crossed the line in a triathlon, it's the mm-hmm. exact same. It's that high, that, that rush. And then you think, oh, I want to do it again. Um, mm-hmm. But just on a grander scale, I think a little bit more dangerous. Yeah, we, we were doing a, a triathlon in switzerland is called the inferno and you go up into this um little u-shaped valley with vertical sides at about two thousand foot high and it's uh, near a place called lauterbrunnen and a few weeks previously i'd watched this documentary called men who jump off high buildings about a group <laughs> of base jumpers and part of it was them going up on this train which is the jungfrau express um, and up into Lauterbrunnen and then going up, um, you go up the valley and then go up the ski lift to a little town called Murren. And then there's a whole load of exit points off the side of the cliff. And while we were sitting at the bottom waiting for the cable car to come back down, um, there was a whole group of these uh, people, mostly men, walking around. Some of them were uh, um, parasenders, so they run off they run off the side and circle around. And the rest of them were base jumpers. 
and we sat and watched for a little bit and it frightened the living daylights out of me because you, you're watching these, some, some of the guys are wearing wingsuits as well. So they're doing what they call close proximity flying where they're not just flying out, but they're flying across the face and trying to get as close as they can. And you're watching this. You can't even see anything to start with. Even from 2000 foot up, you could just hear this fluttering and yeah. this sort of, whooping and hollering and then you see this little black speck and then it starts going faster and it gets close to ground and you go from being amazed to like please open the chute please open it please open it and then all of a sudden it opens and they come floating down and then they walk back and they were getting on the same uh, cable car as us and we had our mountain bikes and so there was there was me and andy and with our mountain bikes there was two or three guys that were doing the the uh um parascending and there were two or three base jumpers and then there was this family of tourists who were just going for a walk and so they were saying oh what, what are you guys doing then we're, we're doing a triathlon tomorrow wow how far is that and and um telling them the distances it probably take us about 15 hours we've got to end up on the top of that mountain up there wow you guys are mad and then the base jumpers were saying we were mad and then we were saying well, what are you guys going well we're going to go over there and we're going to stand on the edge of that rock and then we're going to jump off and open our parachute we're like no you guys are mad and this poor family didn't know what to do with themselves they're <laughs> stuck in this bubble with with the uh, 10 madmen it's, it's crazy actually people's different perspective of mad right yeah like for you doing an iron mountain they're like that is insane then you're like yeah. but you're jumping off a cliff like yeah, yeah exactly then it's normal yeah um yeah well, you've have you have you got any ambitions to do any base jumping, or is that one step too far? Do you think? So, just from just from um, hearing and knowing people that have had accidents base jumping, no, I don't think it's something that I would be interested in. When you base jump, you only have one parachute; you have one chance, and there's a lot more danger because you're so much closer to the ground and to the cliffs. Um, whereas skydiving's safe. You have you have your reserve parachute. You're jumping from. 15,000 feet you've got time to, to fix any problems mm. um so i think i have um you saw how fast the wingsuiters go right they, they're like faster than you can barely see them they've gone mm. um and i've actually ridden on the back of one before oh wow <laughs> that was great fun so i think i'd wingsuit but i don't at the moment i think base jumping is just a little bit mm. uh too, da- too dangerous there's um, a there's yeah there's, there's a film of some guys in norway on the trump's um uh there's some wall that they have, which is on the side of this canyon, and you can fly through it. And there's a there's a road that comes up, and there's a there's a picture of some there's a video of somebody on a hairpin, and they've parked up and they're watching, and you can you can see these two specks come, and they go flying past like Superman in yeah. the film, but, but the video is still, so you it doesn't follow them. You just see them come into view and then go out of view in a nanosecond, and you're thinking, well, that those are two humans that are actually flying in those suits. Um, tracking across yeah, the uh, valley it's absolutely so amazing so 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 fast um yeah it, it's never something i thought i'd get into honestly but just the high you get from it as soon mm. as i've landed my feet on the floor i'm on the next flight doing it again back up like that. so and you said to me in in uh our pre-chats to arrange this that you had to get a thousand jumps in order to be able to land on the palm is that right yes yeah so um to jump over the palm in Dubai, you have to have a thousand jumps and you have to have a certain level of, of um, we have different levels like A, B, C, D, which means how experienced you are. And you have to have had the D license. Um, so I've got quite a few to go yet to, before I can jump on the palm. But so that's one that, of my goals. Is that to actually land on the palm? Because I, I stayed with some friends who lived right on the stalk of the palm there at the five residence. And if you sit on the beach there 
and look out, you can see the airport where you do all the skydiving, but that's not on the palm, is it? You can see it, I guess, but it's slightly to the side. Yeah, it's just on the edge of the palm, but then you do land on a very small piece of grass on the edge of the palm. And the reason that you need to be really experienced is because of the wind turbulence as you come past the buildings, because there's all those tall high-rise buildings there and the winds are constantly changing. And obviously the wind is super important when you're landing. So if you land anywhere but that piece of grass you're going to land in the buildings on the main road like in the in the sea so you have to be really experienced and i think in the whole world that's probably one of the most high criteria it's a thousand to jump wow. a thousand jumps well, that's a that's a goal for me definitely but firstly like um this year and next year i'm just going to travel to skydive so i'll travel around the world to really cool places um choose my holiday destinations based on where's great to skydive Oh, that sounds like the same way I've been choosing where I go to do triathlons. Just yeah, that's like, what it used I like, to be. I like to call it triathlon tourism, but you, you're doing skydiving tourism. So, yeah, I've, I've gone from triathlon tourism to CrossFit tourism to skydiving tourism. Um, after, your, after your shoulder injury, I did, I did see another post where you'd um, entered into some night. Was it a night triathlon or a night duathlon that you were doing in the desert? Yeah, so my comp- the company I work for, In a Fight, we have a an event that we run every year called into the darkness. And it's a, it, we, all of our members do it. It's, we have a 50 K loop cycle loop out here and it's a, mm. you cycle it and then you run it and then you cycle it. So 50 bike, 50 run, 50 bike. And is, is that out at Alcudra? Yeah. 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 So we, yeah. So we do the 50 K loop basically. We start at the car park and then we, we cycle run and cycle. And we do that every year. It's like a traditional thing we do at my company. And I mean, we have like 250 triathletes in our company. And obviously not all of them are able to do that. I had some clients do like 50, 10, 50, things like that. So everyone's doing their own version, but the actual version is a uh, 50, 50, 50. And did you, did you do it this year? No. So this year I, um, oh, here's another story of why I didn't do it. So I qualified for the world championships, triathlon world championships this year in Abu Dhabi. Oh, wow. and I was like, perfect. It's in Abu Dhabi, you know, like it's just down the road. And two days before the world champs, I was rushed into hospital um, with severe stomach pains. And I ended up going and having massive surgery to remove four lumps from my stomach. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and that was two days before the world champs. And then, so I, I missed, I'd obviously been training pretty hard for that, missed it. Um, had to take a bit of time off to recover from that, that big surgery. and then. So when this event came up at my company, every year I would do 50, 50, 50. But this year I did 50, 25, 50 because I was like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have the strength or the conditioning at the moment to be able to run 50K and not have massive problems afterwards, like injuries. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, so I decided to cut the run to 50, 25, 50. Wow. Um, but part of the, the challenge of this event is that we do it in the middle of summer. So you're looking at 80 to 90% humidity. Even though we do it in the night, it's still thirty plus degrees, mm-hmm. and obviously that plays havoc with with so many so many things. Um, so yeah, I did a shorter version of it this year because of the stomach problem. It's but most people won't have ever experienced racing in the dark. It's weird as well, isn't it? Because even though you've got lighting out there and lights on your bike, your eyes start playing um, games with you, particularly when yeah. you get tired and you start seeing things. But and pacing feels different. You can be going really slow and feel like you're going really fast. Yeah. So we start at sunset. And the goal is that you have to finish before sunrise. So it's the whole thing is that's why we call it into the darkness. In the middle of the desert, obviously, there's no light pollution. 
So it is pitch, pitch black, and you can't hear a sound. There's no, there's no sound. You don't see any other in any other people. Um, and it's into the darkness mentally. You go to a really dark place because you're on your own in the middle of a 50k run, and it's it's quite lonely and it's hard. Yeah, it's it's a great challenge. We did the marathon disable a few years ago, and uh, one of the stages goes through the night. This it did for us, and uh, I remember at one point we were walking through the sand dunes, and I made all the folks in our team. There was five of us that teamed up, and we walked again. I said, "Listen, let's just stop here and lie on the sand dunes. Let's turn the lights off, and let's just lie here for five minutes and listen to the wind and and watch the stars, because you you don't get many chances to get somewhere that's like like you just said that's got absolutely zero light pollution." and see the stars in all their full glory. And the, the longer you look at them, obviously the more things become visible and you can see satellites and it was a completely clear night. Um, and then we were lying there and you could hear all these noises. And because you've been going for a full day and you're a bit dehydrated and a bit fatigued, you think then you start thinking, Oh, there's a vehicle coming. Oh, what's that noise? And all it is, is just the noise of the wind on the sand playing tricks with your mind. Yeah. You, you, yeah. And, and as well, you like, you know, when you're so tired and so fatigued into a long event like that, mm. your mind does play tricks on you. It's... Oh, I, I saw some weird things. There were bits yeah. of bits, bits of tumbleweed that I thought were tents. And I kept saying to the guys, we've walked past the campsite. Let's stop here and go and get in the tent. Come on. And the... <laughs> I went to get in one and it was just all of these brambles and thorns. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, after these, obviously after surgery, after your injury, uh, Clearly, it's not been a good 12 months for you. What what will be taking all of your time and attention um, going forward then? Are you going to be going back to CrossFit competitions, getting back into triathlon, or just focusing on jumping out of airplanes? Well, I think my the recovery time for me for CrossFit will be quite long um, because the stability is not there in my shoulder. It mm. feels very loose. Um, for example, I think snatching is the worst movement. I, at the minute, I'm only up to about 20 kilos feeling stable there's a long way off being able to compete again you know i need to be snatching over 80 kilos to be to be competitive um so i've had to accept in the last four months that things are going to change massively from here on forward Mm. um so the last couple of years i've been training triathlon and crossfit side by side and now i'm now i'm doing a little bit more triathlon than crossfit I obviously missed the world champs last year, which gutted me because of my surgery. So it'd be nice to to maybe work towards something like that again. Um, the thing is, I really enjoy short triathlons. I really enjoy mm. sprint. I really mm, Olympic distance, yes, but but sprint I really enjoy. But over here in Dubai, everyone just wants to do half Ironman. Mm. Like that's that's it, right? So there's obviously the Dubai seventy point three um, coming up in November, which. Well, I mean, for me in a fight, we we probably have like 60 people going. So that would be mm. a good event for me. But I'm not keen on non-drafting. <laughs> from growing up in a in a drafting uh sure. yeah, it's like that's a big shock to the system, that one. Mm. Um, but yeah, because I'm able to swim, I'm able to cycle and run. So as I'm negating through my recovery process with my shoulder, a little bit more on the triathlon side of things. Now, for me, that still looks like strength training every day still go to the gym every single day and strength train but just mm-hmm. getting in the the swim bikes run as well less less time spent on the conditioning side of crossfit and more on the triathlon well you can probably do um a hybrid of both those can't you because you probably can spend a little bit less time on the aerobic conditioning a swim bike run because of the strength and stability you've built 
and less time on the conditioning for CrossFit because of the aerobic work you're getting in the swim, bike and run. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was a triathlon that I did last year and there were some really good high-level triathletes in it from, from this area, from this region. And uh, I won. And this girl says, oh, I'd like, you know, well, how much training do you do? Like, what, what's your average week look like for, as a triathlete? And I said, oh, well, uh, I cycle once a week. Oh, I said, I swim to, once a week. How to win friends. <laughs> I swim once a week and I run twice a week. And she's like literally mind blown. And I'm like, but I train every single day. Like I, I obviously with my strength work and yeah. But also I think that what that doesn't, what story that doesn't tell is <laughs> yeah, when no. you were growing up is that you started out in a performance triathlon environment from the age of 11 or 12 swimming and running right up to your, your early 20s. So that's 10 years yeah. of developing a great swim technique, good running skills and a good yeah. biking engine, right? And when you've done that, when you're in your formative years, as you know, you, that, that stuff never leaves you. You might not be as, you might not feel as fit or as uh, on the bike or skillful in the pool, but if I took you to a group of beginners and put you in the pool, you'd cruise up 50 metres with an amazing looking technique, even to them, feeling thinking this feels shit. And they're going to go like, look at that woman, she's a dolphin. Whilst yeah. they're all still splashing up down because you you've got all those things already already in the system, haven't you? Yeah, and and those things take years to develop, right? Mm. Like it's difficult now. We get people coming to me and asking, "Oh, I want to do seventy point three next year." Yeah, and I'm like, you know, like you you'd be able to finish it, but really you want to be doing this for years and years and years and slowly, healthily developing developing over time. Mm. That's always a difficult one as a coach, right? Like. Oh, tell me I've been I've been dealing with those sort of requests and um, wishes for for 30 years it does it does seem from when I first started and did you know my first triathlon in 1987 that's um, when I was born yeah oh now I feel old um you see I'm lost Sorry. for words now so I, did, so I did that first triathlon and it took me another eight years before I felt comfortable and confident enough to do an Ironman now we get requests from people who say, okay, so I'm doing my first triathlon next year, like first triathlon, and I've chosen Ironman Wales. Yeah. And it's the first one. They've they've never swum in a wetsuit or in open water. They've learned to ride a bike, but they've been doing marathons and and they've and but they've seen this advert that says anything's possible. And 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 now they believe it is. And of course, as you know, it is possible, but man, it makes it really difficult. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's, and it's it's a hard conversation to have with someone, isn't it? Mm. To, yeah. Um, but everyone, I think everyone just chasing that high. They want to, they don't want to start with a super sprint and go to a sprint and then an Olympic and build up like a normal way. They just want to go straight in and I want to do an Ironman. I want to be an Ironman. And without really realizing how many hours and years you need to do, to do that. Well, do you, do you get the folks? Um, Cause I know you've got a lot of sort of, really high level business people are out there running the middle east division you know so you've got a lot of lawyers and finance people and triple type a achievers and they're they're already busy people they've probably just started this business project and they've got two children and they're working 100 hours a week and but they have got a little bit of spare time so they could maybe fill that with ironman training yeah i'd like to say to them are you married because if you are you're not going to be when you start doing this ironman training <laughs> 
yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't think you can go anywhere in the world and and find a different uh, reality to that one really triathletes are the same aren't they um but yeah. I, I guess that that's that's the triathlon tribe and if you go to different parts of the world you find the crossfit tribe is very similar and the ultra running tribe is very similar and the skydiving tribe is very similar they're just all <laughs> scattered around the world yeah we're just extreme in that in not our own ways right one thing we didn't talk about jess um and i know again that the whoop have been really um getting on top on the podcast of, of interviewing um crossfit athletes who are wearing the whoop you know yeah. the sleep tracker yeah. and talking about their recovery and and what it tells them are you uh, using sleep as a big tool in your own recovery um and in encouraging your athletes to do the same and how much success are you having with that yes yeah, so i actually wore one for Oh, two years to, um, to try and monitor, like everyone else, try and monitor my sleep and my activity levels. Um, and it, it was probably before that that I started really focusing on my sleep because everyone started talking about it and obviously latest research. I really try and encourage my clients that sleep is the most important part of the pyramid um, before you go on to nutrition and training should be the last of, the, of your priorities. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's so difficult because people live such, such high, like, for example, everyone goes to bed late. Everyone has their phones and devices with them in the bedroom. There's loads of light pollution here in Dubai. Um, I mean, even from, for me personally, I find it so hard to get the right amount of sleep because of my job. So as a triathlon coach in this climate, we have to train at four o'clock in the morning. So we start our group rides at 429 in the morning. So I'm getting up at three o'clock. But the night before, I'm coaching until 8 p.m. So I'm getting, like, I'm not getting the right amount of sleep. So then what I have to do then is prioritize naps. So I will, I have lunchtime, I have generally have off. I will try and catch up. I know it's not ideal, but it's the next best solution would be to catch up Mm. um, on adequate sleep. Um, And having the whoop was was a really big eye opener. Uh, in terms of like the quality of sleep that you're getting right like it's not Mm -hmm. just about oh I've been in bed for eight hours great let's tick that box but you might be getting the worst quality sleep so it's actually in effect not worth you staying in bed for eight hours um what have I done differently I've definitely definitely like tried to do things like eat not eat late before I go to bed um I try I actually wear an eye mask to bed now even Mm. though the room's dark but I just feel like um just not having extra light pollution. A weighted blanket is a good one. I use that. Um, and also, this is something I don't do, but I know I should, is leave my phone outside of the bedroom. So you're not tempted to look at it, not tempted to have it. Um, what do you think about like the, the blue blocking glasses? Do you think they're any good? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I've spoken to quite a few sleep experts on the show, and I think the jury's still out on whether... Um, blue light is quite as bad as they think it is Uh, what i do think is if you are looking at your ipad or your phone or your computer before you go to bed probably gets your mind going on things you start thinking about things you maybe get drawn into work stuff or getting excited or angry about what's been said on social media and so when you go to bed your brain's rolling around faster than it would be if you just read a, a fiction book um, yeah. or didn't or done some deliberate breathing um I, I have i have got a pair of blue light blocking glasses and i did try you know i kept putting them on I, if i go if i'm going to bed and i'm reading and i've got a book on my ipad 
I'll I'll wear those to read, so I'm not looking directly at the screen. Um, I was at one point putting them on to watch TV in the evening, but I just kept leaving them in the wrong part of the house yeah. and forgetting about them. Um, but I, you know, some of those uh, things that you've mentioned there, um, not eating late is something that Beth and I try to do. Wear it definitely wearing an eye mask, particularly here where it gets light very early. Um, yeah. There isn't particularly a lot of a, a light pollution where I live, but our bedroom faces um, to the east, so. When the sun comes up, if it's sunny, it's shining in. So I do wear I do wear an eye mask, um, and I think they're fantastic. I've I've encouraged all my clients to buy one and take it with them when they travel, um, yeah. and get used to that. Particularly for hotel rooms, um, I've not tried the weighted blanket, but we definitely have a very cool room. We have the windows open all the time. We have the fan going, which is like a white noise thing, as well. Um, yeah, so we're lucky here. We have the AC because it's too hot, and the yeah. sound, the sound from the AC. Yeah, I actually find that if the AC is not on, I can't sleep. Yeah, because like, it's that white noise, isn't it? That yeah. Buzz. Well, when we first started using the fan, it was it was putting me off a bit, but now it's it's <laughs> on. It it's just a just a humming in the background. Um, so I've got used to it. But I do you do you drink at all? Like alcohol? Yeah. Very rarely. Not. Very, yeah, so, very rarely. Maybe a glass of red wine once every month or something. But and that's that's not for a health reason. It's just because I don't. Mm. I don't. Yeah, I, I work so much. I don't tend to socialize. So that's that's not a that's not a lesson you learned from work because I'm, I'm I've been wearing. Oh, I did since... learn a lesson from that. Oh, yeah. Oh, go like, on. I I just had one glass. Of, I went out for dinner and I had steak and a glass, one glass of red wine, and the next day my recovery was two percent. So red. Wow. Yeah, and. Uh, it hadn't been a particularly heavy training day. I wasn't dehydrated. You know, all the other boxes that day were ticked. The only thing was I had red meat and wine for dinner mm. and it was red, 2%. Quite late, quite late on the red meat as well, the, the steak. Yeah, yeah yes. so obviously that's going to affect your sleep because of digestion. And mm. um, But yeah, huge. That made me really think like to eat earlier, try not to eat something heavy like like beef before bed. Um, and why did you stop? Actually, why sorry, did you stop? Oh, go on. Yeah. One of my clients actually said the same. She said that she noticed a trend that whenever she ate red meat at night, her recovery was bad the next day. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's interesting. Mm. What was it that made you stop wearing the whoop then? I lost it when I was skydiving. Oh, it fell off. <laughs> it fell off when I was skydiving. Wow. And then I actually contacted them and asked them to send me another one. But then I'd, I'd almost gone cold turkey for a week. And I was like, I don't need it anymore. Like, I'd I loved it and was so reliant on it. But then after a few days of not having it, I was like, I don't need it. Like, mm. I've learned from wearing it to make changes. And I don't need it to tell me. Because sometimes I'd wake up and it'd be, it'd be in the orange. But I'd feel great. And I'd be, like, stressed then. Like, <laughs> should I be training today? Should I not be training today? You know. Um, yeah. Did, did you get that whole thing about when it told you you'd had a bad night's sleep or when your scores were bad and then you, the next night you were worrying then about whether you were going to get good scores and so that then affected your sleep and was counterproductive yeah. to the reason why you were wearing it? Yeah, it ends up stressing you out even more because you yeah. got like a bad score. <laughs> I, I started wearing one in 2017, not, not long after they'd started up, I think, when you could still buy one outright and not have to have a subscription. Um, and I've sort of had an on-off love affair with it and i'm like you I, I go cold turkey and then i start wearing again because i think well um you know the hrv things are pretty accurate and the resting heart rate and those recovery metrics but then i talk to people like dan plues and paul larson who've done a lot of research and they say well you know in terms of recovery metrics 
how you how you subjectively rate your fatigue levels or sleep or stress levels are actually occupy a higher priority in ranking than hrv does um so when when the when the the experts are saying if you think you've had a good night's sleep and you feel energetic or if you feel like you're recovering or you're very motivated to train those those are really good indicators like a bit like rpe when you're running and you know how the best athletes are just really good at judging their pace and what's right and what's wrong um so i think if you've learned the lessons from wearing a sleep tracker um uh, perhaps it's not the sort of thing you need to wear as a lifelong yeah. accompaniment on your wrist or your finger it's crazy how much we need data these days and like i mean obviously here we are again we're going to sound really old but the biggest difference now as a coach is how everything is data and mm-hmm. i look back to when for example when you coached me we didn't have any data. Like I remember you saying, oh, Jess, you need to go out and do a two-hour run. Okay, but I had no idea what pace I was running, no idea how far I was going. No, you know, there was no power meters on the bikes. There was there was nothing. It was all RPE, like you just mentioned. Nowadays, you tell someone to do RPE and they have no idea. Well, no. what pace is that? What what heart rate should be? Was it, you know, and I'm thinking, well, we did it. We did it all off RPE. And even nowadays when I'm training, I very rarely analyze my own data on training peaks because I know if I ran well, I know how I look at my power a little bit on the bike, but you know, we're so data driven these days. It, it, it surprises a lot of people when I tell them that Alistair won a gold medal at London without really having or using yeah. any of that data. Of course, Malcolm had the stopwatch for the track and Jack had the stopwatch in the pool and was meticulous yeah. at collecting that data. But I don't think either of the brothers were using power meters at that point. Um, they just used to go out. And of course, in a, in a, in a, a race where it's reactive, where people are, you know, sitting in a bunch and then trying to break away and you're accelerating and stopping, you're not riding to a constant power anyway. So if you ride around in Yorkshire and sprint up the hills and accelerate out the corners and yeah. do that for two hours, that's a fairly specific type of training session. Um, and I know that Malcolm would say, well, they're training so much. They don't want to spend too much time analyzing what they're doing. That's what me and Jack are, are at. And Alistair would probably said, well, I'm winning races out. So yeah. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah, yeah. I totally agree. And uh I, I I love I know like I know now, I know what pace I'm running without looking at my watch. It just mm-hmm. you just do, yeah. But how reliant people are these days, you know, how stressed they get if their watch dies or the power meter's not working. It's uh mm. it's crazy, right? Because I mean, obviously data's good, but you just thinking back to what we used to have, we, we still do we still did it. Well, um, I, I tell people that, you know, before before the mid-90s, people were winning gold medals at the Olympics and breaking world records with just a stopwatch and a notebook. Yeah, um, absolutely. And they, can, and they can still do that. And I'm, I mean, and I, we, we probably are, um, we probably are uh, being um, overlooking the benefits of data because it does oh, have its place. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, it is good to be able to, to analyse things and pinpoint maybe where something's gone wrong or where somebody paced something wrong. But, yeah. um, but for 90% of the training, I think, uh, learning learning to listen to what your body's telling you in everything from sleep to how you respond to certain foodstuffs to training yeah. is is a valuable skill and I, I do i do feel like recreational athletes should master that first and then add the data rather uh, yeah. than having the data and then not and then not be able to function if they lose it i totally agree and i say that to some of my newer clients like you don't need to stress 
about getting a power meter now, for example, let's learn to listen to your body. Just learn to ride your bike. Learn to listen, like you said, to your sleep, your hydration. And then we can start to number crunch and look at look at the specific data. Um, I think listening to your body is so important, right? And it's something that I feel like has taken me many, many years to get to a point where I'm list- actually listening to my mm-hmm. body. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's because I'm getting old. I'm forced to listen to my body now. No, I think probably but i think also but but i think also get getting older um brings particularly if you're working with other people and you you're you're curious about what what's helps them is that you start to become more appreciative of of how wonderful a tool we have as a human body and um and just what it can do for us and you also have the wisdom then of your own experiences and the observations of other people and you and that's that's what that's what younger coaches don't have is they don't have that wisdom of those experiences and um, whether they're good or bad to, to, to sort of develop that framework that then you can share with others. That's true. Trial and error. We've been through it all before. Yeah. And that is, that is one of the good things about getting older is you develop wisdom that you don't have when you're 17. Yeah. It's a, it's funny. I actually wrote an article about like racing disasters and it was all the things that have ever gone wrong in triathlon races and uh, so many people were like, wow. And I was like, I didn't think about that could happen. Didn't think about this. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, you've done a million races before. You're going to experience everything. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, very interesting. Mm. Yeah. I don't yeah. think I could write an article. It would get sent back because they'd have to cut it down. <laughs> yeah, mine actually do. So um, we have to write uh, articles every month for, for In a Fight. Um, mine often get sent back. Like, Jess, can you just make that a few less words, please? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, listen, yeah. Jess, it's been fabulous to catch up. Thank you so much for being here. I've, I've enjoyed hearing about your journey through triathlon to CrossFit to skydiving and back to triathlon. It's uh, yeah, it's been brilliant. Thank you for it, thank you for sharing. The long overdue catch up. Absolutely. Well, maybe we'll keep keep the distance between the two talks down next time and have you back again. <laughs> awesome. Sounds good. Thank you, Jess. Thank you. Thank you again to Jess for being my guest on the show this week. I hope you enjoyed her insights, especially the part about how she wished she'd paid attention to me and taken action when I explained to her that strength training was good for her at the age of 15. And for you regular listeners, you're probably hearing some echoes in your own head right now after my repeated messages on this very subject. To make sure you don't miss any of the future episodes, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and click on the subscribe button. And while you're there, and if you've got a few seconds, please leave me a review. I would really, really appreciate it. Going forward, please keep in mind our new partnership with Precision Fuel and Hydration, which, because you're a regular listener, gets you a 15% discount on your first order. Going forward, you'll regularly hear Andy Blow or one of his colleagues on the show sharing some of their latest insights or answering your question. And on this last point, if you do have a sports nutrition question that you would like answering, please send it in to me via Beth at thetriathloncoach.com and we'll get back to you with an answer, the best of which will be aired on this show. For all of those things I've mentioned above, you can find links in the show notes, so please make sure you check those out. All right, that's all for this week. Next week, I'll have another great guest and I hope you can join me. See you then.